AM1600KIVABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. Remember that music? That was the uh, music we brought in with one Stefan Helgeson. He is here, right here in the Kiva this afternoon on this uh, wonderful Wednesday. We're going to be looking at uh, one of those Christmas gifts that you need to be putting on your list. He is a prolific author, and he's got a couple of new books uh, since him and I last spoke. um, But the book that we're going to focus on is a book called American Detour, and uh, Stefan uh, joins us right here in the Kiva. Stefan, how are you? I'm great, Eddie, and I'm very happy to be back. And by the way, before we get into that, heartiest congratulations on your run for mayor. We're really proud of you. did a great job. Well, I hope I represented the brand well. I think uh, with dignity, policy, and an ability to communicate on the platform, it was nice to see our uh, conservative Republican uh, uh values, if you will, and solutions on display, and that's what that was all about. We had to make sure that that was put in the uh, public forum, and it was fun to take on the uh, two most powerful politicians in the 505, which, of course, is the mayor and the sheriff, and I think we did a good job, so I appreciate the hearty congratulations. How have you been? What's going on with you? Well, I've been very well, Eddie. I wish I could say the same for our beloved country. Our constitutional republic's in trouble. Uh, I wrote a book Uh, on the four years of the Donald Trump administration, and it was published in June. It's called Remaking America, uh, Reflections on uh, an Administration that Actually Changed History. It's a 400-pager, pretty uh, hefty book. It uh, divides up the Trump administration year by year, and I talk about the different issues that came up during those four tumultuous years. I published that in June. Uh, it's on Amazon.com uh, and also available on my website, which is www.projectpushback.com. But uh, after enduring eight months or so of the Joe Biden administration and seeing uh, all of our forward motion being reversed, I decided I couldn't sit still. So I wrote another book. And that second book is the one that you mentioned called American Detour. Fighting, uh, finding and fighting our way back home. It's a kind of a SWOT analysis, Eddie, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats uh, that covers about eight or ten of our different major issues that are going on in the United States today. So you're saying you've been pretty busy, huh? Not uh, since the last time we talked, you're churning out two books, and, uh, boy, you just uh, keep on keeping on. That's what you got to do, no matter uh, what is in front of you. Or what's behind you? You got to think about uh, what is ahead of you personally, and that's what you've done. And uh, you know, your heart very much is in this country, and uh, your contributions, uh, you know, by getting it out into book form, are things that should be consumed by people who care deeply and are conscientious about the survivability uh, of this country. Uh, Stefan, I'd like to just kind of refresh our listeners' memories since we're doing this. Uh, during our Rock of Talk Wednesday show. And if you could just share uh, with people your wonderful background, what you've done, how you got to this place, and uh, uh, why you are and what you do, what you do, why you do what you do. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for that. Uh, Wow. I've had a long uh, career in a number of different industries and types of jobs, but the one that lasted the longest for me was uh, 20 years working as a U.S. diplomat overseas. I lived and worked in about 30 different countries, uh, and I worked under uh, 13 different U.S. ambassadors and uh, a number of U.S. presidents. 
I was in uh, Europe most of the time. I spent 12 years in Scandinavia, four years in Germany, uh, three years in Holland, four years in Singapore, two years in the Caribbean. And in the private sector, I worked in uh, the Soviet Union back in the 70s when Brezhnev was the premier, and uh, also, also in the Baltic states in Lithuania. Um, I've had, uh, <laughs> I guess, a, a, a long, uh, illustrious, some would say, uh, career in foreign service. But uh, during those 20 years, Eddie, I never got the opportunity to express my personal opinion. And when you're in the Foreign Service and you're working at an embassy and there's an ambassador above you and a communications director, et cetera, et cetera, you're forced into towing the party line, whatever the party line or government line is. And should you speak adversely or in opposition to it, you would be roundly criticized if not sent home. So my colleagues and I could not really speak openly about our politics and our beliefs, especially if they... Uh, uh, disagreed with uh, the prevailing wisdom. So now you're kind of doing that uh, right now uh, with all these books. Uh, these are your uh, fourth and fifth books, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Well, actually, they're my fifth and sixth political fifth and sixth. books, okay. and I've written 12 books altogether. Wow. Two, two books on Holocaust survivors uh, that I personally met and knew, uh, and a few other books along the way. But you know what? I uh, moved to uh, New Mexico in 2004 when I retired, and I went to work for the Bill Richardson administration. Richardson didn't know I was a conservative Republican, but he, he hired me on the strength of my uh, previous experience. I was the director of the Office of Science and Technology for about four years and worked with most of the uh, leading technology companies in the state, along with the research facilities like Lanel and Sandia Labs and the Air Force Research Laboratory. It was an exciting experience, but one that taught me an awful lot about how New Mexico politics is really run. And it's not a pretty sight, believe me. So after four years spent in uh, state government, I decided that was enough, especially after the governor eliminated my job. Uh, when he found out I was a conservative Republican, along with 51 other people and uh, decided I would do something different. So uh, I did what I thought I did best, and that was write. I wrote a number of columns for a now-defunct community newspaper. I contributed columns to other uh, newspapers around the country and later on became a, a news a political commentator for the Danish national broadcasting system and uh, am still doing a bit of that today. So... I kept my hand in uh, politics because I've, I felt it was a kind of calling. Like you, Eddie, you've run for a number of offices because you believe that uh, your country needs you. Well, I believe that the conversation needs me. So I try to do what uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush said, and that is give back whatever you can to your country. I think it's important that we stay involved as influence and not power, and that's certainly something that you have done. You've been someone who has uh, been nudging, pushing, and uh, giving people some ideas, and uh, I hope to stay in that realm as opposed to cross over to the uh, political uh, realm. Uh, I think the one thing that uh, we both agree on, it's the uh, parties versus the people. They have uh, really worked against uh, Stefan. Uh, you know, when we, when we first met, that was the first book you handed me. I'm not sure if you recall that. 
but you literally handed me that book and said, take a, take a read of this. And I said, okay, but we also know that it was Donald Trump and we're going to go into remaking America first. It was Donald Trump who couldn't find a party, wasn't comfortable in the Democrat party, wasn't comfortable in the constitutional party, wasn't uh, comfortable in the Republican party. And there is this uh, third rail that seems to, to be where most of America wants to be. And they recognize him as that people don't think of Donald Trump as a Republican. They think of him as Donald Trump. And I think that that's, uh, you know, important because he has become persona non grata, uh, despite doing some of the best things, I think, for uh, our country that we have seen, not just this century, but maybe in the last two centuries, maybe not since Abraham Lincoln, as far as I'm concerned. So let's get into making a remaking America, if we could. You can pick this book up on Amazon. It's called Reflections on the Trump Presidency. Four years that changed the nation. Uh, by the way, it is a hefty book, but it's uh, four straight reads through four straight chapters through four straight years of Donald Trump's great presidency. And uh, would you agree? Did he make America great again, at least for a time? He did. He definitely did. And for all those naysayers out there, uh, go back on the internet and look up the White House diary that existed for the four years that Donald Trump was president. Watch where he was, what he did, what he said, and judge for yourself. Uh, and it's pretty easy, Eddie, to judge for oneself today after 10, 11 months of Joe Biden's administration to see where we are today versus where we were, say, midway during the four years of the Trump administration. Um, I don't need to go through the litany of problems we have right now because we all know what they are. Uh, but knowing what the problems are isn't enough. You have to be able to solve them. Uh, and in order to solve them, you have to have honest and open and transparent media and discussion about these topics. And if you don't have that, well, then you're not going to solve these problems. And it's simply going to be a contest of power, a, a contest of will. You're right about Donald Trump. He was definitely not a traditional politician. He was what my co-author and I, Lance Tarrance, called a third-way candidate. And he hit America at exactly the right time, a time when the United States was tired of the same old politician, the same politician that would promise you everything and give you nothing, or who would talk the good talk like uh, President Barack Obama did and do absolutely nothing. So uh, the four years of Donald Trump showed us what an untraditional president can be like, what uh, straight talk can be like, uh, and it also helped to move people to either one side of the political spectrum or the other. There weren't too many fence-sitters after a few years of Donald Trump's reign as president. They, are either, they either hated him or they loved him. There wasn't much in between. And I think that a politician, any politician, whether they be local uh, or national, has to realize, as you did in your campaigns, Eddie, that you're going to get a lot of blowback from people who don't know you, who don't understand you, who don't understand the issues, and who are only traditional in the way they vote. And they can't tell you why they vote the way they vote, except to say, well, that's the way I've always done it. Are there people who are involved in the government that don't think much about their party and just think about the power that they have and the power that they're going to get by continuing to sort of ostracize the changers, uh, people who aren't the status quo? That would include Donald Trump. That would include people who would go and uh, change the conversation in a different way. 
And uh, what incentivizes, you know, Republicans and Democrats to sort of have, uh, move, move together, really, if you will, uh, create the false uh, choice equivalency of, oh, you get this or that. But uh, I'd just like to understand why are they so magnetic uh, towards that on both a personal and in group thing? Well, I've lived in New Mexico now for 17 years, and I've been retired uh, since 2004. And I've spoken to literally hundreds and hundreds of people about politics over that time. Unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that we're not going to move people into a neutral zone uh, any time in the near future. We need to, but we're not going to. Because our politics is so ingrained and so different. Let me give you an example. My belief is that it's not so much... Uh, a a Republican or Democrat issue, as it is a discussion of protection of the rights of the individual versus the rights of the collective. Wow. Republicans seem to be supporting and protecting individual rights to a much greater degree than our Democrat friends on the other side who see only the collective as being beneficial to the individual. And I think that's the, the real problem here. Unless we are able to make people who are bent on socialist views to understand capitalism and the free marketplace and the free marketplace and exchange of ideas, we're not going to accomplish much in the near future. So I'm not that optimistic, Eddie. Did Donald Trump uh, really, you think, uh, sway enough Democrats or did... And you remember, of course, the unions. You were the one who pointed that out to me. How did he win? It was the unions. It was overtaking Hillary, putting America first, making America great again. Uh, was that enough to get it done? And adversely, in 2020, A, did you think that uh, Joe Biden actually got 80 million votes? And, and B, how was, if he did, how was he able to persuade uh, Republicans to come over? I think to answer your question as briefly as I can, the... Uh, it wasn't so much persuasion of Democrats to come over to the Republican side as it was to persuade independents to move off the move off the dial. And I think independents uh, showed, along with minorities, that they were not a monolithic voting group. So we saw an independent movement move towards Donald Trump in 2016, and we saw, uh, unfortunately, the independents uh, move back. In my, in my view anyway, towards uh, the candidacy of Joe Biden uh, because they were upset of the way Donald Trump handled himself. Not what he did necessarily, but they didn't like his style. They didn't like his speech. They didn't like his repetitiveness. They didn't like his bombastic nature. And my goodness, uh, America needs a competent manager. And if any of you out there Love listening that. to this program yep. think that Joe Biden is a competent manager... I would love to talk to you. And remember, the best managers are chief executive officers. People need to understand uh, leadership uh, always exists at the very top of any organization, how well it does. Remaking America, Reflections on the Trump Presidency, Four Years That Changed the Nation uh, by Stefan Helgeson. You can pick it up on Amazon. I encourage you to do so because it's four years. And you'll love the format of the book because it's only four chapters, but it's broken out in a very fluid way with uh, little touches upon the things that happen, the main points that happen year by year. Uh, if you don't mind, why did you choose to kind of go that way? It made a lot, makes a lot of sense uh, to me, but uh, it's not uh, generally a traditional way that someone would pursue constructing a book uh, for the revision of four years, Stefan. Well, you're probably right in that respect, Eddie. Um, 
I chose it because uh, we live one day at a time and we live from year to year. I didn't want to divide it up into different uh, areas of discussion, such mm. as the economy, uh, military, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I felt it was better to kind of move with the flow uh, so that people were reminded of what happened in year one, two, three, and four. Uh, that was my belief. Uh, by the way, it's available as a Kindle digital book, and, and, uh, I, and I, I would have my Kindle. Yeah, I would actually recommend that that people purchase the Kindle book uh, because you know, 400 pages on your lap is kind of heavy, and uh, it's a smallish uh, print in order to fit into 400 pages. Yeah. And you know, with the Kindle and the electronic uh, book readers, you can enlarge the type and and move quite freely through it. May it may speak here, if yep. you don't mind. Yep. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but right, right. Uh, just to go along uh, what Stefan is suggesting here, the Kindle is uh, very versatile. You can read your Kindle by your bed uh, with one little digital, if you can see this here, Stefan, right, in the, in, right next to your bed. Absolutely. With, uh, you can get the Audible that plays directly off of your Kindle, which is a great comparative thing to go back. I, I highly recommend because of the amount that you'll save by buying a Kindle version versus the amount of money that you'll save by buying um, the actual book itself. You know, the book takes up real estate space, and it could be good for areas and things like that. But if you can actually get the Kindle reader also on your mobile device, so it will know where you last left off. So instead of you searching social media, instead of you going and posting and answering text messages, guess what you get to use your phone for? Picking up where you left off on the great books that you're reading. Actually, I always recommend digital books uh, simply because I want to help save the environment as well. I mean, oh, yeah. goodness knows we chopped down a lot of trees for our paper uh, in the United States. So the Kindle version is only nine ninety nine, and I priced it specifically lower. Thank you. Uh, so that pe- more people would buy it. I see a lot of people doing that, uh, by the way, Stefan, and uh, I appreciate that uh, as much as uh, anybody. Let me, uh, let, let's just jump forward here. Let's go year by year. And uh, rather than touch upon all those uh, pieces in that first year, right out of the gates, Donald Trump was a Donald Trump was attacked. He was attacked uh, with a setup of collusion. Uh, they created a new narrative to go against him, and he was battling that. And yet, in spite of that, in a very short 100 days, perhaps maybe became the most accomplished president. Uh, with uh, um, some people would call it, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, uh, type. Of, of impact, and it certainly wasn't that. I think he had sort of the this, the spree, uh, the spirit of, of, of the epoch that was happening at that time, and I think he wielded that uh, much to his advantage. Well, he had an agenda, Eddie, and I, I think that's uh, uh, good for all of us to remember. We all need an agenda. We need to know what it is we're going to do today, what we're going to do tomorrow, what we are capable of, what we're not capable of. Uh, Trump uh, has uh, done SWOT analyses all through his private sector career. Is it specifically something that he has done? Have you did you learn that? Uh, I, I what I learned is that he's a fast mover. That he moves swiftly, he moves resolutely, and it's uh, some would say that he doesn't move with enough thought. And I I would push back on that because. Uh, Here's a man who has had a very illustrious, some would say not so illustrious, private sector career, having uh, gone uh, bankrupt three times, I think his company did. But he was able to understand what it is America needed at the time it needed it. We needed to be energy independent, not dependent. 
We have vast resources of uh, natural gas and oil. We needed to marshal those forces. We also needed uh, to get out of those trade deals, such as the old NAFTA deal, that was not doing us as much good as it should have. We needed also to remove ourselves from the Paris Climate Accord because our other big partner in this uh, accord, China, was putting on a coal-fired power plant one a week in their country. Now, I dare say that's not a carbon footprint that we would want to sign on to, so Trump got us out of that. He also got us out of the Iran, con- mm-hmm. the Iran deal, thankfully. So he knew where he wanted to go. He, he knew what uh, would take us there, and uh, he had a plan of implementation, and he implemented it. That created a lot of momentum going into year two. What did year two look like? And I know that the narrative increased at that point with talk about impeach, resist, all of these uh, various things that were a lot of noise, yet uh, Trump was carrying the ball, unemployment going to uh, new lows, uh, the economy improving to new highs, coming out of the malaise of uh, 08 through 16. Uh, we saw market improvement in terms of energy independence. Tell me what year two looked like. Well, year two was a chaotic year on a cultural front for the president and the United States in general. Uh, the forces that supported Hillary Clinton were not going to go away. They didn't go away. They, in, in essence, concentrated their, their force and their power on trying to bring down the president in his very second year of office. Now, every president faces opposition uh, and uh, justifiably because the people that don't elect you are going to try to make you look bad. But uh, Donald Trump was the kind of person that was not going to sit still and be a, a, a wallflower in his own administration. He pushed back. Uh, this surprised some people. Uh, it It surprised a lot of traditional elitist Republicans, especially, who uh, were never Trumpers and became never more never Trump as time went by. So uh, there were a lot of things happening in year two that continued on to year three and four, and that was the the kind of uh, schism within the Republican Party where you were either for uh, Trump uh, or against him as a Republican. And there were many Republicans that simply jumped ship and said, well, we're not going to support this man because we don't like the way he talks. Uh, This is the short-sightedness of the Republican Party from time to time. They don't understand that you don't have to love the way a person looks or talks. You have to love their actions or not love their actions. In the case of Donald Trump, he pushed on despite all of the cultural pushback against him throughout the United States. Of course, that went into the midterms. We did not perform that well, or conservative Republicans did not perform that well. It was uh, an overtake uh, by Pelosi, uh, as well as a number of others, uh, which uh, basically created an imbalance. But also during that time, we started looking at the judiciary. You had uh, (laughs) the appointments and the nominations that came in, and then, you know, on the backs of everything that you just stated, it was a cultural you know, shift. It was a battle. We saw the likes of Kavanaugh and, you know, uh, young Nick in Washington, D.C., just absolutely being, you know, attacked for no other reason other than they're a Trump supporter. Absolutely. And uh, I was a bit shocked at the Kavanaugh hearings, I must say. 
um, not because I didn't see the uh, other hearings that took place over the previous several decades of other justice nominees, but I was surprised at the the venom uh, that the left uh, spewed uh, at uh, Kavanaugh. But, you know, talking about the Supreme Court justices, uh, three Supreme Court justice nominees, that is really something. It saved this country. It did save this country, and it's probably going to be uh, Donald Trump's greatest legacy achievement uh, in uh, in the years to come. And I think justifiably so, because the uh, cases that the Supreme Court is hearing, such abortion, again, uh, gun rights, again, uh, and uh, also uh, cases regarding free speech, the media, etc., are going to be influenced by strict constructionist justices uh, that Donald Trump nominated and uh, got on the bench. Well, Donald Trump in that uh, comeback year for the year three, and uh, I can tell you this all was uh, really, really solid, that the Democrats realized this, and I think it was time for them to sort of unsheath their real plan for year four, and uh, they had it uh, in the makings of... uh, getting things that were out of the area of expertise, something that Donald Trump wasn't used to managing, which is health care. And he had to cede to Dr. Burks and Fauci on the reaction, if you will. I won't even call it a strategic plan or anything, but the reaction to COVID-19. And, you know, they did this all during an election year, the last uh, 360 days of his presidency. Well, as the English would say, uh, there was a spanner in the works, or in other words, uh, the great uh, downside of year four for Donald Trump obviously was the coronavirus and for hundreds of thousands of Americans who contracted it. But it did show us how a federal government could react and did react with Project Warp Speed with developing uh, a vaccine or several vaccines within record time. Now, whether or not you are a, a, a vaxxer or non-vaxxer, it doesn't matter. Just look at the speed with which uh, the uh, healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical industry, was able to uh, prepare or rather come to market with uh, vaccination or vaccines that would work. So Donald Trump understood uh, also the power of the vice presidency, which is something that uh, Joe Biden doesn't understand. And that is by having a very reliable man by the name of Mike Pence as his vice president, a capable man by the name of Mike Mike Pence as his vice president, he was able to move uh, a lot of the uh, work on the the virus uh, and the uh, task force over to Mike Pence. So that's good management. That's delegation. That's something that a good chief executive needs to do, whether it's a man or a woman, young or old, doesn't matter. And then, of course, we had the results of the election and then the events as they would like to refer to them as of January 6th. And uh, I don't want to get into that minutia, I think, right now, because it's a, it's a tireless same whole thing about the first year of Donald Trump and the collusion. It's as real as all of that. But we will address that uh, with uh, Stefan's next book, American Detour, in a moment. But the book that we just referenced and spoke about, and I just downloaded it here on uh, the Kindle, which I love. I just love being knowing that it's on my phone and on my Kindle next to my bed and uh, also right next uh, to me all the time in my phone. The book is called Remaking America, Reflections on the Trump Presidency, 
four years that changed the nation by Stefan Helgeson. He is also the author of The Eleventh Hour, which you should also pick up. And you can find these on Amazon.com. Uh, We're here with Stefan uh, right now. Glad to be back in the uh, hot seat there, so to speak. I am delighted to be back in the hot seat. You know, the book you just mentioned was finished in June of this year, so it's very relevant. Uh, but my latest book, which I guess you want to talk about, yes. American Detour, was written because I just couldn't stand, <laughs> couldn't stand uh, sitting at home yelling at the TV every time I saw some absurd decision taken by the Biden administration that reversed all of the positive decisions that were taken by the Trump administration. So I, I felt it was necessary, kind of uh, something I owed Donald Trump, if you will. I know this sounds crazy to say, but I think I owed it to uh, his administration to make a stark contrast between the four years that really did change our nation, uh, in my view, uh, mostly toward the positive, with the 10 months or 11 months of the Biden administration that is the undoing of America. I mean, time is running out, Eddie. Our system is broken. Um, so many aspects of American life are broken or dysfunctional. Uh, so the American detour, finding and fighting our way back home, is a real SWOT analysis, strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats about why we are here at this moment in time with this president and this vice president and his cabinet and this Congress and what we can do about it in the coming a year ahead of us up to the midterms. Well, we've got a lot to deal with, and we've uh, first for analysis, uh, that is the opportunity that is in front of us. Kevin McCarthy the other day had an eight and a half, maybe nine hour, uh, dare I say, um, uh, I don't know, just Harangue. decimation <laughs> of the other side, and it, it passed anyway, 220 to 213, uh, and that, of course, was the infrastructure uh, bill that was passed through the House. Now, it's got a long way to go. They're looking at post-Christmas um, before they even get it passed because they're going to go through it. And they haven't exactly got all the, uh, like, mansion and cinema and the rest of the people on board. They think they've got 50, but I think we've seen this hubris before. Some very, very disturbing things are in that bill, but I think it's that it's that bill that's going to expose the Democrats for who they are. They want to overtake every part of your life, and whether it's immigration, uh, literally awarding $475,000 to every immigrant that's been split up from their family, uh, to uh, this crazy thing about uh, looking into your own personal bank accounts for any transaction over $600. This is something the government wants to do, but it's all about building back better. However, nobody wants to build back better because Biden's got a 36% approval rating as of this um, uh, broadcast, and Kamala Harris has got a 28% approval rating. It doesn't seem like anybody's on board with this. Uh, how did we get here, and what can we do when uh, we've got a massive opportunity in front of us. Uh, Newt Gingrich himself has pitched that it were between 60 to 70 uh, seats that we will be able to go ahead and flip. And uh, that would be a last tough two years for a very unpopular president and his uh, vice president uh, to face off against going into 2024. Well, the bill which you're referring to, the Build Back Better Super Infrastructure Christmas Tree Bill, as I call it, uh, will actually build back bankrupt. 
uh, we're already uh, way in the hole. How many trillions of dollars? Yeah, we're at 29, debt, 29, 29 trillion. 29 yeah. trillion dollars worth of debt, and the Democrats are willing to put us uh, several trillion dollars more. Uh, what it is is a, uh, a social engineering bill, Eddie. Uh, I have nothing against children. I have two of my own. But I paid for my children's nursery school. Uh, they call it pre-K today, but it was nursery school when I was growing up, and my parents paid for me, and I paid for my children. Personally, I don't think the government uh, should be paying uh, for daycare. Uh, if you want to have children, be responsible for them. Just like paying for their college education, I don't think the government should be in the business of paying for your son's education uh, or my daughter's education. I'll pay for it myself, thank you, or they'll get a scholarship. So there's a lot of social engineering in this bill that shouldn't be there. But it's typical of the Democrats that load up a bill with all sorts of pork barrel items. And I think that if the Republicans are smart enough to talk about each one of these pork barrel items on television, in the media, they will be able to keep those moderate Democrats from voting for this bill as well as keeping their own troops in line. But they have to start talking about the issues. You did something in the mayoral campaign that the Republicans need to do on a national level, and that is focus on the issues. Don't get too personal about your opposition, because if you're focusing on the issues that the opposition believes in, people will make or put two and two together and come up with four and say, aha, that's the opposition. That's my opponent. So I think the Republicans need to be pretty smart about this, pretty quick because President Biden says, well, this bill will be probably voted on shortly after Thanksgiving. Uh, if you believe that, I have a, a bridge in Brooklyn I'm happy to sell you. Let's talk about the issues. Uh, what's going to win it? What's not going to win it? In the midst of this cultural malaise, this race war that they have incited, uh, really uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which uh, is now going into its third year, uh, this would seem to me uh, ripe for the taking. But Will the Republicans fire? Will they do it the wrong way? And how does your book address that very question? Well, thanks. That's a very good question, by the way. And I think it speaks to what I just alluded to, and that is that we need to be speaking about the issues directly and how bad they are for America, as opposed to saying how bad the opposition is for America. People, uh, the voters, the electorate, uh, most of those people who do follow issues understand the differences between Republicans and Democrats, but they need to know that uh, there are two Americas, and the two Americas we have today are the Americas that are uh, ascribed to or supported by the left, which is a collectivist America, and an America on the right, which is based on individual freedoms and individual rights. Now, on the face of that, that should be pretty easy to choose one or the other. But the, the Democrats are clever folks. I give them that. They, are, they understand when an issue, or they most of the time understand when an issue is worth promoting and when it's not. However, uh, go Governor to want to be Terry McAuliffe didn't realize that in Virginia when Glenn Youngkin beat him over the head with his simple, single statement out of a debate that basically revealed his true beliefs that it was government that should decide what children should learn and not parents. People aren't stupid, Eddie. 
You talk to people every day on this radio station, and you talk the truth. You talk straight. Thank you. you do. You talk straight, and people appreciate that. And I think if the Republicans focus on straight talk again, it doesn't have to be Trump kind of straight talk, but they do need to talk straight to the American people and say, this is the kind of America you will have if you vote for our opponents. X number of trillion dollars in debt, and this and that, unemployment, continued government overreach on COVID, etc., etc. Or if you vote for us, this is what you'll get. We have our freedoms under attack. There is no way to try to dance around that. I mean, we, we've decided, Stefan, what's essential. They've decided, not we, they have decided what's essential, what's non-essential. They've decided how you're going to go ahead and address health care. They've decided when you can go to school, when you can't go to school. They've decided how much money that you are going to pay uh, for gas. They've decided whether or not you're going to have a uh, renewable car and how you're going to get penalized. They decided to go ahead and start increasing uh, their the audits uh, in the Internal Revenue Service to make sure that there's uh, force compliance uh, with every agenda item that they have. How is it that the Republicans can try and compromise uh, with any Democrat at this point, given the Democrat progressive agenda and certainly um, the AOC ascension uh, to her presidential run in 2024? Well, I think the Republicans uh, need to be a little smarter uh, than they are right now uh, by uh, simply using that argument that I talked about. And you just, in 30 seconds, uh, really summed it all up. And that is the government uh, is overreaching and is telling uh, the citizenry what to do to such a degree that the citizens are saying, stop, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm moving. Well, there are only so many states you can move to uh, that are uh, red states in the United States. The, we're caught in the middle of kind of a bi-coastal political vice. On the one hand, we've got Washington State, uh, Oregon, California, Nevada on the West Coast, and we've got the New England states, uh, et cetera, on the East Coast. And they're pushing the narrative of the collectivist view that we need to have more taxes, more property tax, more personal property tax, I should say, more sales tax, more government control. And the red states are saying, uh, y'all come. Texas is gaining companies by the handful these days. And, And why not? Texas is saying your company can thrive and survive at the same time here. They can't do that in the blue states. And the blue states are going to be bleeding companies within the next year or so as the energy shortage that we have or the energy crisis that we have starts to increase. I want to touch upon something that you probably have more knowledge about or should have more knowledge about. I'm going to put you on the spot here, so I hope you don't mind. It's almost like putting shall in the midst of any document I put in front of you, you will do this, you know, just feeling a little Democrat here with this uh, question and, and insight. But, you know, you get the direction from Fauci and Burks and the reaction to COVID-19 and the mandates and the stepping up of the fear and all this, uh, Stefan. And I'd like for you, since you're from the uh, Scandinavian countries and you know that very well, and uh, could you could you uh, drop a little uh, Danish on us uh, here on the on the mic, you might? Ja, det vil jeg da gerne, Eddie. Jeg vil uh, ønske, at mange flere af jer, der lytter til det her program, som er danskere, vil kontakte mig. What did you say? I said, uh, I will, Eddie. I would uh, wish that people who 
do listen to this program and who speak those languages would contact me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, let's address what Sweden did versus Scotland uh, or what uh, you know New Mexico has done versus Florida. We know where the infections, we know that this is the holy grail of control that the Democrats have uh, tapped into in blue states, the uh, the hate states, uh, hate eight states, as they were, they were leading up the charge. New Jersey, New York, Washington, Oregon, California, Illinois. I mean, these uh, particular states were absolutely the the worst of the worst, all dominated, run by by Democrats. And tell me what you know about these Scandinavian reactions uh, versus uh, other places, and why that might be a model. Well, as I said, I lived uh, maybe 20 years of my life in Europe, and uh, 12 of those years were spent in Scandinavia. Uh, Sweden, uh, as an example you mentioned first, uh, did not go along with the conventional wisdom about shutting everything down. Uh, Sweden uh, does not have the kind of tourism or, uh, I would say, uh, foreign visitors that many of the other uh, uh, European countries have. So perhaps they, they were fortunate in that respect that they didn't have a lot of people from outside the country infecting those people who live there. But the Swedish uh, government was very uh, reasonable about its uh, uh, regulations regarding the transmission of the disease, regarding uh, the freedom of its businesses to keep operating. And consequently, uh, the cases of uh, coronavirus were not as severe on a per capita basis in Sweden as they were in many other countries. Uh, If you take Denmark, a country of only five and a half million people, mostly homogeneous, 12% of the population is foreign-born. The Danes today do not have lockdowns. They have no mask mandates. Uh, Their children are in school. They've been in school for some months. Uh, The businesses keep uh, plugging away, doing business. People still keep going to restaurants. Uh, And the cases of the coronavirus are not exploding as they are, unfortunately, in neighboring Germany. Uh, So each European country has its own set of challenges because of its logistics, because of its population uh, density, because of its population mix, uh, and because of its governments. But uh, we could learn a lot. You know, Bernie Sanders was always very happy to uh, invoke uh, the names of the Swedish healthcare system or the Danish healthcare system and use that as as a, a model for the U.S. to follow. Well, I don't agree with him on that because I've lived in those healthcare systems in addition to one in Holland and Singapore, which are basically run by the government. But that, I'm getting off track here a little bit. But one of the key issues that we're going to be facing very, very soon, and this is a local issue as well as a national issue, and that is the loss of our healthcare professionals. Not only are many of them quitting because they're not going to submit to becoming vaccinate, to be vaccinated, but they're retiring, they're moving out of state. Uh, nurses are becoming visiting nurses where they can make twice as much money. Uh, doctors are retiring and leaving the state. We're in a crunch for medical professionals. We've got to do something. And the president and the vice president and the Congress and our elected representatives need to start focusing on the healthcare industry and separate it from the healthcare insurance industry. They're two separate issues, but that's an issue for another show. Wow, that's a lot, and a great analysis and a good breakdown overall. Let's uh, just you and I chat uh, here for the last uh, few minutes here, Stefan, and we got to catch up. And I'd love to see you on a more regular basis. Uh, you can uh, certainly do so 
Uh, we can uh, bring you in via TV. We've added a lot of things since you've last left. You know, besides uh, everything else, a lot more stickers. <laughs> All right, I see. And then uh, our TV, rockoftalk.tv, which we've added, which uh, is a nice visual element, which we've been uh, putting together. And, uh, you know, we'd love to talk about these books and getting your insight. But you also uh, pen things uh, each week, and you uh, write. Where can we find your writing? Well, my writings are up on my website, which is www.projectpushback.com. And every morning, Eddie, I do a deep dive into the top 15 conservative websites, and I pick out a story of interest that I think will interest my readers. And I put a link uh, in an email and send this email out uh, to anybody who wants it free of charge. Uh, And I'm happy to do that for your listeners. All they need to do is go onto the website, projectpushback.com, and send me an email. I'll put them on the list, and they'll get an email with those links every morning, generally by 5.30 a.m. But I think that we all can do something. Eddie, you've got a terrific pulpit here, uh, a powerful microphone, uh, and and you're out there in the public. And and people who don't write or aren't on the media, they can still do something to help further their uh, case for a more traditional laws-based America. So... I'm an optimist when it comes to that, Eddie, because I think that everybody can contribute and do something. I think uh, you do do that. I do that. We need a lot more other people to do that. Uh, We can only do so much. I think that's fair to say. Well, that's true. And in my book, The American Detour, um, I talk about 10 rules uh, for engaging with liberals. And one of them is very timely because... Uh, as you're hearing this on Wednesday, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, ladies and gentlemen, and you're going to be at a dinner table with people that don't share your opinions. Uh, question is, what do you want to do about it? Do you want to risk agita uh, on, a, on a table-wide basis? Do you want to risk losing uh, some relatives because of a varying or different political view? Um, you've got to thread that needle very carefully uh, tomorrow because... Thanksgiving is a day of thanks. It's thanks for everything that everybody that died for our freedoms gave us. We've got to realize that every viewpoint is valuable. It's not every viewpoint that is correct, but every viewpoint is valuable. And we've got to figure out some ground rules for talking with our families, with our friends, with our community in a way that doesn't alienate people from the subject matter. Well, you brought it up. Help us out at the dinner table tomorrow. Okay. Uh, we got the family. We've got cousin Ned, Uncle Ed, and uh, you know Grandpa Jeb all there. And one's a liberal, one's a libertarian, the other one's a Democrat. And we're walking in as a Republican. Uh, how how do we address anything at this point? Do we bring up the jab? Do we uh, uh, do we bring up the shot? Do we what do we do? I think that you got to start general. Uh, start by asking your relatives how they're doing. How are you feeling? How how's life? What's going on in your life? I think being a questioner is a lot better than being a speechifier when it comes to conversation that could go off the rails. We've got to realize that these are people that we love, people that have we, we've grown up with, people we might have disagreed with from time to time, but there are families, for heaven's sakes. There are friends. Uh, a man or woman cannot have too many friends. We don't choose our family, that's true, but we do choose how we relate to our family. And for heaven's sakes, 
relate to them in a civil, positive, uh, compassionate way. Ask them how they feel on a general level, Eddie. If we get into the weeds and start talking about specific subjects, again, ask them what brought them to that viewpoint. Don't ask them, uh, or rather say you're wrong or engage them uh, in, in a conf- conflict situation, but ask them how they came to think that way. And when you hear them talk, you'll be able to tell whether or not they've got a good argument on their side that they have come to on their own or something they've borrowed from somebody else. So be compassionate, be friendly, love your family, love your friends. Uh, For anybody who wants to get involved in politics, uh, what would you suggest to them? Do you get involved in the party? Do you get involved in a community? Do you just walk your neighborhood, your homeowners association? How would you advise people now that we're in this uh, new environment? How would you uh, get them involved? I mean, obviously you have your skill set and your ability to communicate across uh, not just, obviously, the book medium, but uh, through the radio as well. I think, Eddie, that there is... Okay, let me say that there are two ways to eat. There's a smorgasbord where you have a buffet and you can pick and choose from items on a long table, or there's a a price-fix menu where you're not going to be able to choose. I look at uh, people entering the political realm or thinking more uh, about getting more involved in politics as going to the smorgasbord. In other words, go to several different types of meetings where you will meet different types of people. Don't uh, focus on one too early. Uh, A lot of people are looking at school board meetings right now because of CRT, the uh, uh, critical race theory and the gender fluidity issues and all of that. Yeah, you could go to a school board meeting, but don't uh, limit yourself to one type of audience. Uh, sample a little bit of what's going on in the community with different uh, special interest organizations, for example. Uh, get a, a feel for how people are uh, feeling about these special interest issues, whether it be the environment, whether it be crime, you name it. So treat getting involved in politics as a little bit of a smorgasbord and don't concentrate too much on all Republican or all Democrat meetings. Wow. Some uh, sage advice and uh, from a guy who's been around the world and who's the author of now 12 books, uh, but six political books. The last two are the two that I would like to talk to you about and get you to go ahead and buy them. Black Friday is coming, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You can uh, pick them up on Cyber Monday as well. Remaking America, Reflections on the Trump Presidency, Four Years That Changed the Nation by Stefan Helgeson. It is a good read. In fact, I'm about to get through it. Myself, now that I got on my Kindle, and uh, this is a, uh, a, a book that uh, I'll probably read over the next uh, four or five days when I'm out in Vegas. And then uh, we've got American Detour uh, to be published. Is that correct? It is published now and available on Amazon.com. There it is. American Detour, Finding and Fighting Our Way Back Home, also by Stefan Helgeson, author of Remaking America, which is the aforementioned uh, book. So there it is, American Detour, uh, Remaking America. Stefan, uh, thanks for being back here in the Kiva. Thanks for all that you do, and uh, glad to reconnect, buddy. Thank you for all you do, Eddie, and thanks to all your listeners for staying loyal to your station. That's uh, what we love. We love the loyalty. Don't forget to download the uh, app directly at rockoftalk.tv, rockoftalk.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hour 2, up next, Jeffrey Candelaria interviews me. He asked me all about... Well, how it went with the election. So he's going to get to do all the questioning and 
I get to do all the answering. So a very special second hour here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining in, folks, right here on AM 1600 KIV, rockoftalk.com. Albuquerque's macro-aggression, Eddie Aragon, the rock of talk. I am Eddie Aragon, the rock of talk on AM 1600 KIVABQ.FM, com. here on this uh, wonderful Wednesday afternoon right here in Nikiva. We're joined uh, now by Mr. Jeffrey Candelaria. Jeff uh, joins us uh, right here on this uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and he's got he's got a lot to talk about, but he primarily wants to talk with me I guess about the mayoral race, my thoughts on radio, and then uh, interview me on a number of different issues. So Jeffrey is uh, here. Jeff, how are you? I'm great, and thank you again. There's a lot to be thankful for, notwithstanding uh, a lot of the economic uh, chaos going on, uh, what I call class warfare, not really racial war- warfare that w- lots of media outlets want us to think about, more mm. or less a class warfare. Uh, Karl Marx reminded us of that. But notwithstanding all of those issues, we still have a great deal to be thankful for, Eddie, because even in this country with all the chaos going on, yeah. I was looking this up, uh, something like 3.9 billion people on planet Earth don't even have running water. Wow. So a lot of people have, not to have running water. Well, absolutely. So we have a great yeah, deal. Not, of, a lot of people not saying, uh, who flushed the toilet? Then, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, at any rate, happy Thanksgiving to all. And thank you, Eddie, again for allowing me to... Uh, have a perspective on the Rock of Talk. We're on every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. And thank you for producing the show. It's yeah. called Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. So, so much uh, let's, uh, so let's, much straight talk. Let's do some straight talk uh, with uh, Jeffrey Candelaria to Eddie Aragon. I know you wanted to ask me a bunch of questions and do a little bit of interview and maybe a little bit of debrief as we go into the holiday season. Absolutely. I thought what we could do for the next hour or so is just kind of have a free-flowing discussion about multiple issues, both at the parochial level, national, and perhaps even international. First question for you is, Okay. and again, I was very, very impressed, as I said before, with how much traction you and your messaging was able to achieve in the mayoral race, given that you really only applied, what, about a a 10-week run, uh, and you achieved almost 20% of the vote. Yeah, I mean, only uh, 45% of the market recognized me, and I got... uh 18.7, 18.6 or 18.7%. So, obviously, we can attribute a lot of that to the fact that you're well-organized, you had a a good team, you had infrastructure. But what do you think your message, what essentially did people respond to in terms of your messaging, do you think? Uh, Well, we were the only campaign talking about issues. Yeah. Uh, These two guys were talking about each other, and uh, I think what why they responded or... Why our base responded is because they know what we talk about every single day, and they understand that I know what the issues are, and I have been addressing them. And so I think what they responded to is just me. I think that's the value of radio. It's the power of radio. And uh, then the opportunity to sort of expand upon that uh, in a campaign, which is warfare. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, we can conclude from all this is the Republicans – had a voice in this election. They did not have a voice prior to me getting into the race, and that was disappointing. So 
I apologize uh, if people felt uh, that I was maybe a little bit too rough on them, but if you think that a Democrat who voted for Michelle Lujan Grisham or was behind Barack Obama or any of these things uh, was, uh, I, I think, a good representation of Republican and Republican Party, then, uh, boy, I'd like for you to leave the party as soon as possible because those are bad Republicans. We would do better by making sure to really <coughs> like, really push out our platform what we believe, why we believe it, and why you should believe what we believe. Uh, you can't do that by trying to cross over to the other side, and that's been a failure of the Republican Party. So I think what people really did respond to is, they knew that we had a firm backbone, they knew what we stood for, and they knew what uh, what our objectives were. We had a clear vision, we had a platform of the five C's, you know. It was uh, corruption, crime, commerce, COVID, and uh, city, and the whole thing was completely focused on making sure that everybody could go out and talk about uh, what we were trying to achieve, and I think we made it pretty easy for people. So I, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, that we started the conversation, and those uh, conversation pieces have now turned into some policy suggestions for one Tim Keller. Um, we can only hope at this point uh, that they do continue. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, I, I consider myself to be a, a conservative libertarian or a libertarian conservative. I'm very disappointed with the Republican Party, both at the national level and locally, because the Republican Party suffers from the same, uh, I guess you'd say, detracted... Uh, uh, effort that the, the progressive liberal democratic party does. And that is they, whoever they is are unwilling to talk unvarnished truth. And I'll give you an example. Mayor Keller now calls homeless people unhoused, unhoused, which presumes that a hundred percent of those hobos living on the street and people that are mentally ill actually want the responsibility of a mortgage or owning a home. And the sad truth is, I don't know what the percentage is, Eddie, but no one talks about on either side the fact that many people that are homeless actually view it as a street, as a lifestyle. It's called street life. Now, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying it's, it's, uh, it's something I would obviously uh, subscribe to, but it's a lifestyle, Eddie, and no one talks about that. And the fact that many homeless people don't want the responsibility, Eddie, of owning a home, having a job, having the discipline of being a parent or whatever it is, because guess what, Eddie? It's hard to do those things. And why doesn't anybody openly talk about that population in terms of maybe 30% of it are people made up of people who have decided that homelessness on the street is actually a street lifestyle? I think that you're correct in that. Uh, obviously, we can't make a blanket statement uh, on it, but there are people for whom that does exist. And uh, it is uh, really sort of the uh, fourth rail of homelessness. We know that uh, homelessness is mental. Uh, if you have uh, some sort of uh, mental uh, disability or, or mental ailment, uh, we know that it's chemically dependent or drug dependent or alcohol dependent. Yes. And then finally, economically deficient. And I don't think any of those three are making those rational choices to be homeless, I think they're a slave to whatever it is that uh, they are addicted to or what they suffer from. The fourth rail, though, however, is the predatory rail, and that is street life. And uh, I think what you see a lot with uh, that, Jeff, is really interesting, is this predatory unit that wants to be on the street that uh, rapes, murders, stabs, and takes advantage of the other 
if you will, uh, groups of homeless people that are out there. So I think that uh, you're correct in saying so. This is more ag- aggressive. Uh, they panhandle. They're more extroverted. Uh, they are uh, definitely the people who are committing the crimes out on the street. And uh, they're not a small segment uh, by any stretch. With well, 5,000 homeless people out there, there's a, a good you know, 1,500 people uh, who are homeless, uh, who shouldn't be homeless, but they choose to be homeless, who uh, sort of uh, prey upon all these other uh, sectors of the homeless people. And uh, these are, this is why we should have some criminal uh, repercussions and consequences uh, for that class of homeless people. Absolutely. And that's why I'm surmising that it's about 30% of whatever the homeless population overall it's is. There, yeah. And again, it's, it's something I've witnessed myself because I grew up in a blighted area, and I saw a hierarchy of homeless street life people mm. who actually would dominate those yeah. in a lower rung. And to your point, I would also donate, when I lived on South Broadway, clothes over on, uh, I believe it was on First Street, right there by the railroad track, and, and I believe it's lead, lead in First. Yeah. And when I would actually go to that particular shelter and donate clothes, you would see a tent city, and I'm telling you, people would come up to me because I had a nice car, they thought I was donating clothes, and the dominant sector of that hierarchy would approach me and wave off other people that were in their own environment in that tent city. So to your point... There is absolutely a hierarchy of people who live in that street life mentality. And again, I'm not judging it, but no one talks about it because yep. they're afraid to talk about it. Because well, I think because they think it's uh, really more of a blanket statement. So when you say homeless, it's immediately victims. And that is not the case, as what we're both agreeing on. And it, it also implies, like the mayor using this word unhoused, that 100% of that population actually wants the responsibility of owning a home. And the fact is, that is just not a true statement. And I never hear anybody with the courage to just call it out for what it is. I'm not judging these people. Who the hell wants to, to live in, a, in you know, a, a pair of blue jeans they've been wearing for 100 years, even though I'm dominating the next guy in a tent and I smell like a skunk? I'm not saying that's good, bad, or ugly. All I'm saying is it exists. It's a dynamic. And neither re- the Republicans or the damn Democrats and any of these fat donut eaters have the courage to call out the <laughs> truth. Yeah. They just... Don't talk about these things. I don't know where these fat donut eaters are, but uh, mostly that, in that, Santa that, Fe. Oh, mostly in Santa Fe. Do they eat donuts up there? Oh, I don't even know. I know there's a Dunkin' Donuts that's there, but beyond that, uh, what else you got for me there, Jeff? What did you learn running for mayor of Albuquerque, or what surprised you the most? You were in the race for about three months, uh, and again, you you uh, secured almost twenty percent of the vote. What surprised you the most about really only really only two months officially? So okay, September third sure. until November second. So what what surprised you the most about running for high office in Albuquerque? Uh, wow, the greed of other people that are running for office and who they will destroy to get it. I think I think I didn't realize the level of appetite that they go to. I was sued two times. I was put in front of the board of ethics. And then I was sued uh, as well to try and get off the ballot. And I thought that was very interesting given how late I came in. Uh, so that that was a, a little bit surprising from the standpoint that I think it was just so egregious and the force was, you know, so explicit and palpable. So, you know, that I think uh, took me aback. I was surprised uh, just how inept uh, Manny Gonzalez truly was. You know, I already knew that his inability to get off of the, you know, ground um, – 
was was one of the things that enticed me to get in because we had to have somebody to try and take Tim Keller out and Manny was just getting his ass kicked every single every single week it was like a new thing and nobody was talking about the issue so I think that surprised me I did not think that you know he was his own worst enemy and that certainly that has become evident and and I was disappointed to see that uh, because you brought him in here and I actually you know I wouldn't say he's personable, but I, I would. I wouldn't say I disliked him. I would say that I, you know, I more liked him than, than disliked him. And the, the the real thing that really surprised me is how easy it was for me to sort of overcome both the mayor and the sheriff. And I think the mayor is in way over his head. As uh, nice a guy as Tim is, I think he's remarkably deceptive uh, in terms of how accomplished he is. I don't think he is anywhere close to the level achieve the level of accomplishment that his resume would suggest. Uh, so I think he's more of a protected person. Uh, I think he is not a good fit for uh, the leadership role of that our city is coming out in midst this chaos and, and uh, you know, real, you know, real issue laden situation that, that we've been in. So, you know, what I would say is I'm surprised that the voters didn't see that, the way that I saw it. And I thought I drew that out quite a bit, uh, especially during the debates. I thought I showed that uh, both Tim and Manny were both outmatched. I was disappointed, though, that the voters weren't able to see that. And I was also disappointed with the lack of attention. I think there's a little bit too much apathy. Like, how far do we have to go downwards uh, before we get people to pay attention, care, and make a different decision? I mean, given where our city has been, and then the Democrats, the way that they've run it, uh, and whether it's Manny or Tim or Michelle or whoever it is that's running us on the ground, I just don't know. Like, well, distraction per- is a great manipulator, though. But but know. I don't know what I, what I what I don't know is I don't know where the bottom is, and I yeah. I know you don't, and I I don't know that the people here in the state of New Mexico know where the bottom is when we have this level of government dependency the amount of money that they're getting from the government, they all do, they're sheep, they all do what the government tells them to do. And as we have learned over the last 20-plus months, uh, Jeff, uh, the government does not have uh, our best interests in mind. Absolutely not. It never really has. It's, uh, it's also a, a function. There's a, a great quote that talks about you know, how politics is, is such an evil, dirty game, and the aphorism is economics is the gun, politicians and politics is pulling the trigger. And that's the dirty game of politics. You actually pull the trigger. But getting back to your point, I think people like you, and even, you know, I think about Donald Trump in a way, even though he was a maniacal uh, narcissist, his policies made a lot of sense. But what people like you tend to do that call out real practical solutions to problems is you challenge the population. And that's the issue. uh, People are actually unwilling to be challenged right now because they've had it particularly in states like new mexico where they're sucking on the governmental breast Mm. and have been for generations it's hard to be successful and i talk about that on my show you know i have people that i know my own friends oh you know you have a nice car you have a rolex watch you live in a nice place and they assume that that just kind of happens you know they forget there's a mortgage they forget there's a there's insurance there's they forget you have to get up at six in the morning to show up for work when you, whoever you is, in your case, Eddie, ought to go and challenge half of Albuquerque that if they want solutions to take place, that population has to participate in the solution while you're alienating some of those folks because they don't want to participate in the discipline 
of the solution. Yeah, I don't know that they think they need a solution. That was the only disagreement that I'd have with what you're saying is, I don't know, Jeffrey, that they feel like we're in such trouble. And that's why I said we don't know where we're at. We don't know what the bottom is. Like, what's going to need to happen? I think the bottom's going to be safety, which would be chaos and and rioting in the streets, kind of like what you saw in Kenosha. I think what you're also beginning to see, and I think you'll agree with this, is the inflation. Even someone like my dad, who I love, who's been a Democrat for 60 years. Wow. His grandpa was a Democrat, whatever. And now he's, when I ask him on Sunday when he comes over to watch football, how much did it cost to uh, fill up your gas tank, Dad? Oh, last year it was only 40 bucks. This year it's like 80. And I said, okay. So he's but beginning see, he's, he's beginning to see that that's... But a, he was still okay with it. I mean, he wasn't right. totally not okay with that. But he's definitely uncomfortable with it now. I think the so level inflation, of discomfort, what is that? Was that $6? Is that uh, is that inflation uh, rate on you know a ten percent scale? Like we don't know what that threshold is, unfortunately, and and it's one of the things that we've been insulated from uh, from our own actions, oftentimes uh, because you can artificially inject three point seven billion or eighteen point three billion uh, into the New Mexico economy, and people are like, oh, we're fine. We need to go ahead and pay attention to our health and our safety. But the more we the government injects money into the ecosystem the less value each dollar has. Well, that's precisely and, right. And, and I'm beginning to think, though, that New Mexico, because it's such a blue state contingent on government, and you may agree with me on this, they will see inflation continue to escalate and augment in the Biden administration, and I think that's going to be a differentiator because it absolutely does cost the average... Uh, keep, uh, keep this in mind as well, Eddie. A lot, 40% of New Mexico is on a fixed income, 30%, whatever. A fixed income? Are you kidding? With everything costing more to the tune of 7%, some economists are saying the real number is closer to 10%, and it's going to continue to grow. Exactly. I think what we don't understand, again, is what the real impact is, because, you know, it's the daddy government that's saving us uh, from all that, or as we should probably refer to it uh, at this point during her administration, uh, Minnie Mao or Auntie Michelle uh, up in Santa Fe. We're speaking with Jeff Candelari. He's doing an interview with me, and we're getting some uh, some answers here. Good questions. Uh, Jeff, uh, what's next? So do you have a future in politics? Have you made that decision? I'm uh, the most political guy you know. I do my politics every single day on in the air. In terms of running for office? Uh, sure. I think there's um, little doubt uh, that. I think the only people... Uh, who are going to try and prevent that from happening are the Republican elites within the Republican Party. But, uh, uh, you know, newsflash, just to let you know, uh, I will be running for mayor again in 2025. Well, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be um, a little bit differently situated. Uh, you won't be able to refer to me as a talk show host. You'll have to refer to me as an attorney uh, by the time 2025 rolls around. And I think it's important. My, my best use is behind the mic, I think. Uh, to help the cause, and I need to help every conservative Republican. And I will not ever in my lifetime, I made that commitment, ever vote for a Democrat for any reason whatsoever. Uh, So, you know, I think I'll be in the race, and uh, we'll see if the Republicans try to field something just to kind of, uh, you know, uh, misdirect everything. Let's see what they're committed to. Why do you think the Republican Party in Albuquerque and the Republican Party at the state level fears or... Is challenged by you, or frankly, or, or frankly, maybe maybe not like you. Why are they disenfranchising you? Because it didn't seem like they embraced your position yourself as the only Republican running for mayor. Well, I think uh, this is cutting off your nose to spite your face. 
you go with people. It's not about being liked. It's being about being electable. And then uh, can you rule and govern uh, after that? Uh, all three of those checkboxes, uh, yes, I can be electable, um, obviously, uh, govern and rule. Those are both things that I can definitely uh, do. The reason why they don't is because they don't want me to be the answer. I'm a male, Hispanic, well-spoken. Um, I don't represent the uh, waspy world that many of these people come from. Yeah. Uh, and I think you understand that better than, than anybody. So Absolutely. I do say things very directly. Uh, culturally, I identify differently. I mean, I am very New Mexican. You know, I will come right at you and I will, uh, you know, sort of fracture you with humor uh, or an, an argument uh, the, all the same. So I think they should get a little bit more used to it and stop trying to sort of, um, you know, try to put a square peg in a, in a, or a round peg in a square hole or vice versa. And that's what they're doing when they don't adapt to culture. Now, remember, uh, I think politics is all about culture. If you don't embrace the culture and you want part of the culture, instead what you're trying to do is, superimpose your values and your culture over New Mexico, well, then you see what you're getting now. You see you're getting this uh, wildly wicked progressivism that's going to say, well, we're okay with critical race theory, or we don't want to push back too hard, or we got to work with the Democrats, or, you know, yeah, we're okay to legalize marijuana. Like, none of these boxes, I think, exist within the conservative, uh, Republican, Hispanic, Catholic church, uh, 400 years of, uh, of, of, uh, in inhabited uh, inhabiting uh, the territory in the state of New Mexico. When we came here, we were drunk, we made babies, we brought Jesus Christ, and we had family. And that's the one thing that the government has gotten in the way of. And for some reason, both Democrats and Republicans love big government. Yeah, and we also brought. And I argued this in my op-ed recently, uh, Jeffrey Candelaria here with Eddie Aragon. We brought. A Frank sense of St. Francis of Assisi's interpretation of Catholicism. And I talked about that briefly about three months ago with a guest. So St. Francis of Assisi was a saint who actually was born into wealth. He was around the 11th century, so a thousand years ago. And he ultimately, his manifestation or his interpretation of serving Christ, Eddie, was to be austere, was to be a non-elitist, was to be poor and to celebrate poverty yeah. and austerity as actually a, a way of celebrating God. And in New Mexico, that still lingers. You know, we fear that is success. The, that is the best point. It's not that we fear success. It's that we champion poverty. And Great point. Uh, it comes from this whole sort of liberation theology movement within the Catholic Church that Latin America can never be this sort of, you know, powerhouse, uh, hegemonic uh, power uh, in in the world, and it's because of the way that they think of themselves. And you're absolutely right. Uh, no, we have to worship the crown. It's only in Spain. It cannot be in Argentina. It cannot be in Mexico. It, it can't cannot be, here. be in Brazil. It cannot be in New Mexico. What all of the uh, grand European theater is so much better. And what we've actually found is, no, uh, if you really think about the real power in the world, and uh, if you think about... You know, what could lead from the front? It is southwestern United States uh, in the United States, yeah. and that's exactly where we are. And unfortunately, we've always thought of ourselves, whether we're dependent upon the crown of Spain or dependent upon the uh, crown in Washington, D.C., we've never taken it upon ourselves to be responsible for ourselves. So it's almost been built into our uh, DNA. We uh, need to take the next uh, 10, 11, 12 generations, Jeffrey, to go ahead and weed that stuff out. Absolutely. Your laws in England or Spain 
or any of these other places don't govern us. We are free people. We need to be acting as such, but uh, we do act, uh, you know, the poverty pimping that goes on by the Democrat Party to keep people poor, and then, you know, then you create that uh, feudalistic uh, patron system uh, (coughs) from the standpoint where there's only a few people who have the power, and they rule over everybody else, and that's exactly what we have in the state of New Mexico. Well, and again, it's a it's the real religious, it's the religious anthropological component that's been with us for 400 years. We actually, to your point, celebrate poverty and austerity, and we think that's a good way to celebrate and honor Jesus Christ. And keep keep in mind a contrast to that, Eddie. Make me a channel of your peace. Like, yeah, do what we say. <laughs> right. Don't 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 you know speak up too much. And if yeah. you're too educated, and oh. if you're too wealthy. And if you're who do you think who do you think you are, Jeffrey? Exactly. So you're not only not only are you challenged by your own kind, but you're also dealing with the white dominance of the Republican Party that's been around for 150 years. So if you're a Hispanic, to your point, who has education, who has moxie, who has sophistication, who has enlightenment, and who dares challenge the status quo, you have to face the gauntlet on both sides. And we're fighting an uphill battle because at least black people. You know, they're, 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 they at least have introduced the idea of reparations and all this other kind of stuff. But see, the, the, the prideful people, uh, Hispanic, and the culture that's built within us, we don't want the hand up. We don't want the handout. We want to say we did it ourselves. Uh, yet at the very same time, we have so many people. There's really few need, of us that are willing to do that, though. Well, I think there's more people who say that, no, you can't tell me I earned this because I did this. It's like, oh, no, I committed 25 years of my life to the government. I worship the government, and you should work for the government, too, Michael. Yeah, and that's exactly. the way they all think. And I'll get you a job, don't you know? That's a great point. I was raised by my grandparents, and I love them to death. They're gone. But they said, why don't you get a city job? That way you can retire in 20 years, as opposed to, why would you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, and take all that risk, you know? I mean, it's like it was not something that was particularly welcomed. But I wanted to contrast the, the St. Francis of Assisi championing and celebrating austerity and poverty with, think about the Jesuits, Eddie, the Jesuits on the East Coast and in many parts of Europe, one of their ways to honor God was to be disciplined and educated. And that alone is why I continue to argue that many in New Mexico actually are threatened and don't value education. It's also a threat, Eddie, to think about, think about it like this. Most of New Mexico for the past 400 years has been agrarian, farming and ranching, Right. But if little Adi Aragon or little Jeffrey Candelaria is too educated, he's not going to be part of my labor on the ranch. That's another dirty little secret that folks don't talk about. If you're too educated, he's not going to marry another Hispanic, you know, and he's not going to be part of our labor community. And that's another economic a calculus that no one talks about. So I think it's, it's important for people to speak up, speak out, and uh, you know, actually articulate your your visions uh, as well as your values and what you want. And I think what happens is we get hammered by the news, and so we feel like we have to do what is superimposed on us, whether that's the COVID lockdowns or whether that's uh, hey, you know, we've got to go along to get along, and uh, you know, the Democrats have done a great job and. You know, my grandfather, we are all getting sort of uh, malleted uh, back in and uh, staying in line. And for the people who are really sticking up and standing out, uh, we're being, you know, treated as if, uh, you know, we are the 
uh, problem. Uh, we are the ones who are the, the rabble rousers, the rascals, the people who are stepping up. And what, what essentially we're trying to do is get people to wake up and realize what's happening around them because we're losing our culture, we're losing our economy, we're losing our way of life, and we have all volunteered uh, to do away with all of our freedoms. We are one of the most free people in the entire country here in New Mexico, right up until the point that we decided that we were going to vote Democrat. And at that point, we surrendered all of our freedoms. We did. And again, those of us that are willing to talk out loud about the uncomfortable truth and challenge the status quo and talk about St. Francis of Assisi, talk about championing uh, austerity and, and not really valuing education, we get ridiculed, we get canceled, we get threatened. But that's why it's even more important that people like you and me and others, uh, that we, you know, that the iron sharpens iron and that we coalesce around uh, these these issues. Because if we don't unapologetically, uh, New Mexico will continue to rank last in almost any significant statistical metric that measures success in, in a state. Absolutely. You got more questions there for me? I do. So your thoughts on the recent uh, verdict with uh, Kyle, uh, was it Rittenhouse? Uh, for me, he's neither a hero nor a villain, but your your thoughts on how that particular case actually many people on the left and right attach themselves to that trial, right, Eddie? And attach their agenda, their perspective on how the world should look on that particular trial when, while it was racial because he did go to a Black Lives Matter riot, he actually, you know, killed two white Caucasian folk. Your thoughts on that trial and why we attached ourselves politically, whether we're on the left or right, to that particular trial and whether we're on the left or right, we're either disappointed or gratified you know jeffrey i'll uh, i'll answer it this way and uh from the standpoint of you know paying attention to just nearly everything that's in the news is something that you naturally do i have to say that for our audience it would have been irresponsible for us to speculate or jump into the middle of the trial or do any trial coverage yeah. whatsoever prior to a verdict being given uh one way or the other uh and i think it's merely speculative you know we have a unbelievable justice system uh, which is one of the best of its kind, which provides for a jury uh, and allows uh, the judgment and the information that comes from those people who have the most amount of information. I think all of the rest of the noise that surrounds that, whether it's uh, riots in Kenosha, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, New York, or anything, you know, that shows and illustrates more of the idiocy of what you've continued to see, the noise that's created by the, the news media. Blood is on the hands of the major networks, uh, on the hands, even including Fox News, of the... Well, I would agree you, with that. You know, they they yeah. have all that. So it's totally and completely irresponsible, I think, to cover that or to play only certain parts. So I think we have to trust the justice system. Um, I think we need to return, and if there's a verdict that's uh, being uh, given, then I think we need to understand that. I think we need to move away from the labels, and we need to move away from the colors of people, uh, or even the races of people. Um, there is a difference between color and race. Uh, so I think if we can start stepping away, then when these trials come in, they will be a lesser deal. There was a crime that was committed, uh, and the crime wasn't necessarily by the person that was perceived to be the perpetrator because it was clearly a, a case of self-defense. Uh, the jury would have probably ruled in another way if they didn't see that information. You don't have that information. I don't have that information. 
The news media doesn't even have that information. We only have what we're being allowed to see. So from a perceptive standpoint, which perception is the truth uh, oftentimes, I think we need to move ourselves away from any sort of judgment, accept the verdict, move ahead, move on, and decide that at that point that, oh, justice must have been served. If I'm so interested, why don't I take the time instead of riding in the streets or you know destroying or looting or burning or, or any of these other things or playing Monday morning quarterback, why don't I go ahead and uh, investigate the trial myself or pick up a book and read about it if I'm, if I'm so motivated? Well, you make, you make an excellent point, and that's why I introduced or entree that question, because the trial for me represented the very apotheosis of a binary society that we live in. People polarize uh, an issue, and they go to one absolute side or the other. I mean, I was talking to a couple of friends the other day. Oh, that Rittenhouse guy, he's a, he's a racist murderer. You know, and then according to well, what? No, I know. I'm just saying according to their, their Twitter account. But again, last night I'm watching a couple of accounts on Fox News, and they're positioning him as a hero. I don't think he's either. I don't think he's a villain or a hero. I think he's a guy. He had a gun. He's a white person. He inserted himself into a, a predominantly Black Lives Matter chaotic uh, you know, riot, and he's bringing an assault rifle. You do the math. You're a white guy with an assault rifle, and you, you insert yourself into a. Yeah, a, a black, I would just. I would. I, just, I think he's he he welcomed trouble and well, he found it, and he was from a criminal perspective. He did he he did defend himself, and he's not guilty of that. But he did welcome chaos, and it happened. Well, I would just say this: uh, if there's uh, uh, in, in things that are happening out there, and these people want to you know rape, loot, destroy, whatever. Let them go ahead and do it. There's nothing that you need to, you don't need any visual anti-justice to prevent that from happening. If it's your own business and they cross the line, then you shoot them. Yes. <laughs> it's as simple as that. You yeah. come into my business and you threaten me, you're dead. Like, there's this very, very clear. But uh, just to kind of go back, I, I think we have to be careful about using, you know, heavily laden, uh, charged uh, uh, words, if you will, to describe or be descriptive about what's happened, we didn't know anything. So to say that, you know, he walked in, looked at trouble, or he had an assault rifle or any of these things, it doesn't matter. It's his right to possess that. And he, if he decided to do it, and he hadn't done anything to create the chaos, which he didn't, uh, but was simply defending himself, then regardless if it's a slingshot or a, uh, a Gatlin gun, he it was, it, was, it was his right to defend himself however he wants. And if those people didn't possess a gun and they were out there on the street and they were only going to use their fist... That's the name of the game. I mean, uh, we're, we're not going to be uh, drawing the same exact type of guns with the same type of bullets for them to do it. Not everything has to be fair. In all fairness, uh, uh, Mr. Rittenhouse was, you know, hugely outnumbered. And uh, I, I think given the uh, level of tension that he was facing and stress uh, from the people who were against him, I think, uh, you know, looking back on it, the judge uh, likely ruled in the right way. Oh, I, do, I don't disagree with the, the verdict itself. If you if you simply uh, dissect the, the the criminal charges uh, put forth against the guy, he absolutely, from what I could tell, and I, I did watch most of the trial, he defended himself. All I'm suggesting is he did uh, insert himself into an environment with an assault rifle, and he happened to be a white guy. He happened to be a young-looking white guy, and you've got a great deal of mob mentality going on, uh, mostly Black Lives Matter, people looting, committing crimes, 
uh, burning down buildings. I mean, what did he expect was going to happen? He he welcomed a great deal of risk, and he found it. Again, he is not guilty. I think that's the correct verdict, but I don't think he's necessarily a hero. I don't necessarily think he's a villain. I think it's a kind of a complicated situation. All I'm saying is my point was that whether it was Fox or CNBC, if you look, if you watched either interpretation of that trial, he's either a uh, a spiteful villain, uh, you know, a malignant human being, or he's a hero. And it's just an example of what you said earlier. Uh, Fox News is just as guilty many times of the other side of putting forth an absolute polarized, uh, you know, a narrative based on you know, their interpretation of what the world should look like. I just think it's impossible to, to have any sort of discussion about it, you know, at this Why point. Why is that? It just it What just happened? Is. When There's you were a, younger, was debate and discourse, I, but I, I just it, don't, did I don't, it happen? I don't even think it's worth debating uh, from the standpoint that if you're, if you're just looking to debate a trial... I don't have enough enough information, neither do you, and there's nothing to debate about it other than the media's reaction and the circus that they've created around it. I just don't think that there's, you know, the only the only debate that needed to happen was between the prosecutor and the defending uh, attorneys and, and leave it at that. I think we need to start accepting the outcomes and uh, stop crying foul. You know, we have instant replay in football or basketball or, like, I can't watch NFL uh, any longer, and the reason why... Uh, between the whining and the crying, whining and the crying, and the instant replaying and the challenges and all this other crap, it's not a football game anymore. In my opinion, the ball's played on the field. It's what I love about golf so much. There's only the rules that come with the golf course, uh, and if you mess up, the ball rolls or you touch anything like that's it. There isn't an instant replay. You have one chance to make the one shot, and it goes in this direction. And I think we need to just stop uh, stop trying to you know, uh, uh, make things so artificial and so perfect. Uh, like the political correctness that's been going on, uh, it, it just has to stop. Well, there is a provisional in golf. So anyway, uh, getting back to your point, I don't know that I have any outlet anywhere on mass media where I find true debate. When I was a kid, I used to watch Firing Line with, uh, I forgot the guy's name, and he would occasionally bring on someone from the left who was at that point, you know, at that time a Democrat, and they would actually have fluid uh, discourse, um, uh, William Buckley. And then remember you had, you're too young, but issues and answers, uh, there was firing line. And I remember up until about 1990-ish, I'm I'm just kind of giving you an arbitrary date, I remember on national uh, TV outlets, Eddie, you actually witnessed actual debate and real discourse where you had some compromise of thought where you had non-judgmental thinking and not so much emotion brought into these uh, so-called conversations. Because most of the time I hear the word conversation, I want to vomit. Because it's usually going to be, I know what's right, I have the moral compass, and I have the emotional uh, equity that you don't. Logic has nothing to do with my interpretation of conversation. Yeah, well, I think to glorify uh, the way things were done in the past, I think is a discredit to the way that things are done now. I'm just suggesting that in any medium, whether it's sports or news or anything, there's way too much uh, a commitment to uh, fairness and, and balance, and it's just unnecessary. You know, there's outcomes, you live with them, and you move forward. And we have not done that. If we don't like the outcome, we sue. If we don't like the outcome, we challenge. If we don't like the outcome, we decide to do something about it. And 
you know, you see the kids' baseball games and football games, and that hasn't, uh, you know, exactly improved the overall, the, for all the well-intentioned stuff that they've been doing. It's just, it's really just unnecessary. I wouldn't say that things were any better in the past than they are now. They are to, they have just gotten to a certain point where, you know, we consistently, consistently look at everything and we say to ourselves, well, that's not right, that's not fair, that didn't work out, or want to debate about it. I'm saying that once the trial's over, it's over. Once something is ended, it's ended. There's not a need uh, to have a debate beyond the verdict uh, that was awarded in a, in, in a courtroom or the play that was uh, played on the field. There was a referee that was there. He said it was good. It's good. Or he didn't say it was good, and so it was no good. Like, that's where it begins and ends. I think we need to be okay with the chaos and, you know, hum- human judgment in the midst of everything. Yeah. I would argue, though, that things were incrementally a little better, and I'm not trying to be nostalgic because everybody looks at the past and says, God, things were so much better when I was a kid. But I do think journalism was a discipline where you had a bit more of the dynamic of objectivity there and uh, making sure that your sources were, were, were fraught with veracity and truth. I thought there was a little more integrity in journalism than there is today, and I don't think back 40, 50, 60 years ago, when mass media was at its apex, I don't think things were quite as binary. I think people were willing to accept this thing called nuance a little bit more. That's the overarching point I was trying to make. Our culture has become so polarized. Everything has to absolutely be this. Everything has to be absolutely that. And we're forced almost to take a side on one side or the other of a line. And all I was suggesting is this uh, 18-year-old kid to me, he is neither a villain nor a hero, and certainly not guilty of the, the crime of, of murder. Yeah, I don't know him from Adam, and uh, the Rittenhouse verdict has zero impact on my life, uh, and uh, nor should it have any impact on any other community beyond the community in which uh, where, it, where it happened. It's yeah. not speaking to anything larger. I think it's only illustrating our foolishness and stupidity and our lack of information that we have in any of it. A verdict was awarded. It's over. Let's move forward. Unfortunately, Black Lives Matter and Antifa won't be doing that. Jeffrey, run out of time here. Uh, we're last, done? Last two minutes, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, um, as we conclude today, I just wanted to again thank you for giving me the platform to, to have my show and to talk about these kinds of issues openly. I really appreciate that you have the courage and the leadership to allow these kinds of perspectives to be put forward, whether you agree or not. At least I think what we try to do on the Kiva, the Rock of Talk, Eddie, and I think you'd agree with this, is challenge, yep. engage in critical thinking, make independent choices, but be convicted to those choices. And that's what I think we try to do, is challenge people to engage in critical thought and be convicted to those positions and make a difference in our community. Yeah, I think the important thing, too, is we give opinions so that way you can see our perspective and come up with your own. Whether you agree or yes. disagree, you get the choice of where you want to be on Absolutely. all of that. Third hour coming up next here on this Wednesday afternoon. Thanks, Jeffrey, for being here. That's not really her style. They all got the same heartbeat, but hers is falling behind. Nothing you